following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, we're, we're grateful, thankful, and even at times overwhelmed, Lord, that, that you would allow us to come before you and, and even... Uh, desire it, even call us to approach you. And we know that it is only because of the blood of your Son that we can come before you and beseech you, make known our requests and our needs, and give you praise, confess our sin. We thank you for this privilege to pray. Thank you for this opportunity today to talk about praying together. Lord, may it be your word that we hear, and may your Spirit work through your word understand and apply it. We pray these things in the name of our dear Savior. Amen. That's why I'm glad we're going to talk about prayer this morning, because I need it. Um, Now, I recognize, too, you know, as we come to this topic in our What's Up on Sunday series, which is uh, prayer, um, you know, I realized that several of the titles uh, from the last many sermons in this series were kind of generic, maybe a little bland, and so I thought maybe it'd be good to have something else out on the marquee, you know, a better title for this topic this week. And so I did what any self-respecting preacher would do. I went to sayingsforchurchsigns.com. There actually is a site for that. And believe it or not, I actually found some rather clever or insightful uh, sayings regarding prayer. So I thought I would share a few of those with you. The, the first one that I saw was, our church is prayer-conditioned. Okay, well, this one I thought was rather clever. Maybe you've seen this one before. Seven days without prayer makes one weak. Ah, yeah. So, uh, also, I like this one, too. A lot of insight in this. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? I think for a lot of us, it might be the latter. Here's one for upcoming men's conference. Get on your knees and fight like a man. Or another one I think is guy-oriented is preacher or preacher prayer is hand-to-hand combat. It took me a minute to get that one. Hand-to-hand combat. So, also too, here's one for our tech age. Prayer is the best wireless connection. <laughs> and then one that I found um, actually very encouraging. Prayer is the place where burdens change shoulders. And I, I like that. And I didn't end up going with with any of these for our time together this morning or titles. But you know what? In each of them, they convey certain truths, certain important principles about prayer. And usually when when the topic of prayer comes up, usually there's a focus on private prayer. Prayer is individuals, your quiet times, time alone with God. It's not often spoken about when we talk about prayer, of corporate prayer, of praying together. And so I want to do that this morning Especially considering when we gather together on Sundays in particular and pray together. I want to talk about that. What should prayer look like as part of our public worship? So our outline this morning, we're going to consider three aspects of this. The prevalence of corporate prayer, the particulars of corporate prayer, and then finally the practice of it. 
First, let's look at the prevalence of corporate prayer. And you know, as I explored this topic in the scriptures this week, I was surprised and, and even amazed at how often prevalent, how prevalent uh, corporate prayer is in the scriptures. It's literally all over the Bible, from the public prayers of Moses to Daniel to David, Solomon, Ezra, also Nehemiah, the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the others. We often see many examples of corporate prayer together. In fact, a survey of the scriptures show that it is, it is commonplace for God's people to pray when they gather. This is even seen in how the temple is described. In Isaiah 56, as God speaks of the nations coming to worship Him, to worship in His temple, listen to what He says in Isaiah 56, verse 7. Those I will bring to my holy mountain. And holy mountain here is a reference to Mount Zion, the temple mount. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Sounds like that would make a good title for a song, I think. I should ask Tim about doing that. Jesus also referred to the temple as a house of prayer. In fact, we see that uh, when he was clearing out the, uh, the money changers. He said, you know, this is a house of prayer. You've made it a robber's den. And indeed, the temple was that. It was to be a house of prayer where, where people came. And we see the example where people would come to the temple not only to offer sacrifices, not only to, to give tithes, not only to give praise to God, but also to pray together. In fact, while Zacharias was in the temple and the, the angel Gabriel had come to meet him and he was in the temple performing his priestly duties, it says in Luke 1.10 that the people outside in the courtyard were in prayer together. It was a common event when Paul and his companions were in Philippi. And it says in Acts 16.13 that on the Sabbath they were looking for the place of prayer there in town. And again, we see from this and these passages and these examples that corporate prayer was was embedded within the fabric of God's people when they gathered together, especially on the day of corporate worship. We see this clearly in the early church. In fact, what I'd like to do is something I did when we looked at baptism. Go, go to the book of Acts. We're going to look at a few examples of this in the early church when God's people gathered and prayed together. Let's begin, and we're going to look in Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 was, of course, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had after the resurrection, spent 40 days with his disciples and instructing them and encouraging them and addressing various issues with them regarding the kingdom. And then he said in verse 4, before he ascended into heaven, he told them, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. To wait for the promise of my Father who would send this Holy Spirit. And so the eleven, they returned after they saw Jesus ascend into the clouds, into heaven. They returned back to Jerusalem. They went to the upper room. And if you notice in verse 14, look at what they did there. These all, referring to the disciples, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And so... Seen here, right? These disciples, they get back, they get to the upper room and, and they gather together. There's uh, several others there. In fact, it mentions in the text 120 are gathered there. It's, I guess, a rather large upper room. And they were doing what with one another? When they gathered together, did they, you know, fritter the time away in idle conversation? Were they staring at the walls? Were they sitting in chairs without saying anything? What were they doing? 
says they were, how, how were they praying? Continually devoted to prayer with one mind, right? They were praying together fervently, unified, constant, dedicated prayer. And again, it wasn't just the 11, right? It says that the, there were several women with them, including Mary, along with Jesus' half-brothers. And also it says a total of 120 people were gathered together in prayer. And I thought about that. Think about all that had happened just in the last month or so. They'd seen Christ die on the cross, seen Him alive, spent those many weeks with Him, 40 days in fact, and then see Him ascend into heaven. Imagine what prayer service that must have been when they gathered together, awaiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, wondering what's going to happen now. It would have been neat to have been at that prayer service. Look over at Acts 2. About 10 days later, after that prayer service, after uh, they prayed and asked God to provide a 12th a disciple, a twelfth apostle. Then we read in Acts 2, of course, the, the day when the church was born, the day when the church came about, the Holy Spirit had come. Peter declared the lordship of Jesus Christ as seen through his resurrection. And then he called the people to repent. And then we read in verse 21 that about 3,000 souls had put their faith in the Lord Jesus that day. And then in verse 32, after they were baptized, it says, They were continually devoting themselves, there's that word again, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to these things, to the the word, to communion, to fellowship with one another and to prayer. That continually devoted as this idea of holding fast to, of, of continuing on and of persevering. And notice again in verse 46, it indicates as they were doing these things in the temple, they were of one mind, with one mind, of one mind with one another. Skip ahead to Acts chapter 4. Here's when, right after that, in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and others were proclaiming the gospel. Here in Acts 4, Peter and John had been going about the city of Jerusalem, uh, declaring the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they were doing that, the religious leaders were none too happy about that. They thought they had gotten rid of this Jesus problem when they had put him on the cross, right? And here these guys were out there telling people about a risen Savior. And so they brought them in and said, you guys need to stop this right now. No more telling about Jesus. Because that was the time uh, we, they were saying that there's no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. So they said, stop that. No more. They didn't know what else to do with them, so they, they let them go. Peter and John make their way back to the other disciples of the Lord Jesus, uh, the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And notice in Acts 4.23 what happens. When they, that's Peter and John, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, this is all that the people gathered there, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. And they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. If you skip down to verse 29 where their prayer ends, he's saying, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So here again, we saints are gathered together. Peter and John come. They give a report, the fact that they had been hindered, that they had been told not to preach anymore, that there was persecution now going on. And what is it that God's people do without even being prompted to do it? They lifted their voices with one accord to the Father. 
and asked that he would give them by his sovereign hand boldness to preach the gospel even in the midst of this persecution. And so again, we see the believers are gathered here praying. I'm going to mention a few more passages in Acts. I'm going to do it quickly, so you may not be able to keep up. But I just want to reference these. You can look at them later in detail. But in Acts chapter 6, when they appointed the seven to take care of a feeding of the widows, it says that they prayed over them, prayed for them in this task, the congregation together with the apostles. In Acts 12, remember when Peter was in prison? And he was sitting there in prison, and God's people had gathered, and they were... Do you remember what they were doing on his behalf? Acts 12, verse 5, it says that they were praying for him. It says prayer for him was being fervently made by the church to God. Acts 13, the church at Antioch prayed for Paul and Barnabas as they were sent out to be uh, missionaries to the lost. In Acts 14, 23, as Paul and Barnabas had been going to churches and appointing elders and leadership, it says there that they had, would pray for them, that the church would gather, they would pray for these leaders and the tasks that had, they had been appointed for. Acts chapter 20, after Paul met with the Ephesian elders, it says that they, after their time of gather where he encouraged them, he exhorted them, they knelt down together and prayed. Acts 21, the very next chapter, verse 5, Paul had spent about a week with fellow saints in Tyre. And it says there in verse 5, after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell. And these examples and, and many others, they demonstrate a common theme, a common event when God's people were together. It was something that they would do together. And I think even though we only looked at these examples very briefly, I think they show us the clear example and habit that when God's people gather together, they would pray. They would pray. They were naturally inclined to pray. That was the norm in the early church. It was natural. It was usual. It was expected. It was even instinctive. I mean, in Acts 4, when Peter and John came, they immediately together. Nobody said, okay, we need to pray about this now. They just immediately, with one accord, it says, lifted their voices to God and prayed. It was something that they just did. They knew that when they gathered, it was for Christ. They knew that when they gathered, it was because of Christ. And so naturally, when they gathered, Christ should be a part of that gathering, right? That was just something inherent and embedded within them. And yet how often when we are together, how often when we are with other believers, whether it is on Sunday morning or in a small group or Bible study or having fellow believers in your homes, how often do we gather together and our Lord is not included in the conversation? You know, I have suffered much conviction this week just in thinking about these things as I thought about our Christian ancestors and the the, the, the natural way in which they went to the Lord together in prayer, that it was something that was just on their hearts. And I asked myself, how natural is it for me when I'm with my brothers and sisters in Christ to pray together with them? Is that something that's just automatic? I don't, nobody has to, to remind me or make me think about it. It's just, we need to talk to our Father together too in this time that we're fellowshipping with one another. Even as I pray from this pulpit, I was thinking about, is it done merely because it's something that I'm supposed to do? That's just part of what you do when you're going to give a message. You need to, to pray. And I thought about this. Or is it because I truly desire to have us go before God's throne and to beseech Him? To know what He is trying to tell us, what He has spoken to us, and that He would give us and empower us the, the ability to live that out. 
and to ask that we would do according to His will, so that we would go before Him, desire to do the work He's given us to do. And I've been thinking a lot about that this week. I've been thinking about, beloved, our our prayers. They, They should never be forced. They should never be dispassionate or ritualized or or disengaged. It should never feel awkward or seem awkward to pray with one another. It should never be strange when somebody says, why don't we pray together? You go, what? What are you talking about? Prayer together should be natural. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. I would add to that even corporate prayer should be a natural thing. And in corporate prayer, we must remember that it is prayer, that it is directed to God. And whether it's me up here or it's maybe you praying with a group of folks in small group or wherever. Remember, our corporate prayer is not to be directed to one another. You know what I'm talking about, right? The, the preacher prayer. Where the things that you're talking about, the things that you pray, they're really intended for other people in the group. It's kind of like the little boy who was praying with his mom and his grandma one night. And, and uh, he's praying the sweet prayer, Lord, dear Lord, bless my mom and my dad and my grandma and grandpa, even my brother. Bless him too, Lord. And then he paused for a minute. And then, and then he, with a very loud voice, said, and Lord, I really want a skateboard for my birthday. And his mom was kind of startled because he had spoken so loud. And said, son, son, God isn't deaf. And he said, I, I know, but grandma is. <laughs> he was trying to sneak in a little birthday request there. But seriously, I think you know what I'm talking about, right? When God really isn't the focus of that time in prayer, but somebody else is. Something maybe you want them to fix in their life. And so this is a subtle way to kind of bring that up or maybe at times when we're praying with others and we want to look as mature and look like we got things together or look spiritual and so we will condition or form our prayers in such a way so that others would see that so again we, we have to be careful of that we have to remember that corporate prayer is corporate prayer it is to god right on behalf of ourselves and others and when someone else prays those of us listening have to also remember it's corporate prayer it is praying together remember in acts 1 it says that with one mind they were continually devoting themselves to prayer in acts 2 it said that they were with one mind in one mind with one another in acts 4 it said they lifted up their voices in one accord they were praying together there was a togetherness in prayer yes it it may have been one person doing the speaking but it was not one person doing the praying understand the difference not just one person that's focused on the Lord and speaking to him and everybody else may or may not be listening or maybe thinking about something else. No, it's a it's a united agreement, a harmony, a coming together, praying together. Makes me think of um, Ezra back in Nehemiah chapter eight, when the scriptures had been read before the people and and Ezra, before he began, he prayed to the Lord and offered him praise and blessed God. And then it says in Nehemiah 8, 6, that the people answered, Amen and Amen. And they bowed before the Lord. They weren't just listening to Ezra. They were praying along with him in agreement. And so when, when we are gathered, when you are gathered with fellow believers and, and someone is praying according to truth, praying according to Scripture, if, if you're a part of that, then pray. Pray with them. It's okay to say things out loud even. Say amen. That's okay. 
or maybe out you know, in agreement saying, uh-huh, yes, Lord, please, Father, pray together. For if we really are praying together, then let's do that. Let's pray together. If we really are one body, let us be one body, especially in prayer with one another. We need to be actively engaged, as the scriptures talk about, with one mind coming before our Father together. Amen? And I know corporate prayer may seem uncomfortable, especially in smaller groups. Uh, It may seem unimportant or even unnecessary to some. I had a pastor tell me one time that he did not see the necessity of praying together or even see that it was something mandated in Scripture, despite all those examples that we saw in the book of Acts. And what he did was he pointed to Matthew 6. I want you to turn there a minute. It's important that you see this. He pointed me to Matthew 6 to explain on the passage when Jesus was talking about prayer. If you remember in that text, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was exposing in chapter 6 the religious hypocrisy of those who were doing acts of service to God only to be seen by others. He said in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And so then in this chapter, he addresses in verse 2, giving for the needs of others. In verse 5, he begins addressing prayer. In verse 11, he talks about fasting. But notice what he says in regards to prayer in verse 5. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so I was told from this that you see here, Jesus is commanding to pray in private so that you aren't seen or heard. And again, Jesus is speaking here of private prayer. He is speaking here of individual prayer. And and that is something we see emphasized by the pronouns even in verse six. They're all singular. But in this, he is not commanding that that all prayer be private. Otherwise, that would contradict a couple things. One, it would contradict the example of the early church in Acts, right? They prayed together a lot. And it would contradict even Jesus' own practice. He often prayed with others. And so I don't think Jesus here is giving a mandate for all prayer, that all prayer must be private and corporate and, and in your closet. What he's dealing with here is the abuse of prayer. That those who are praying with the intent to be seen and heard and looked at as these spiritual uh, gurus, these mature people in the Lord. And he's saying, don't do that. If you're tempted to do that, if you're tempted to have it be an act, then, then go in your closet and pray alone in private. Now, while this is not a command that, that all prayer be private prayer, it is something definitely to keep in mind and consider and obey in regards to corporate prayer, right? That when we are praying together, as I mentioned earlier, that we aren't doing it concerned about what others think of us. Oh, did I say that the right way? Oh, that didn't really sound very godly or spiritual. No, we need to be praying to the Father, praying to Him, not worrying about the approval or praise of others, just as with anything in the Christian life, right? We're not supposed to do it for one another. We're supposed to do it to receive reward from the Lord. It's interesting also to note here in regards to this topic, if you look down in verse 9, when Jesus explains to the disciples how to pray, the Lord's Prayer, some call it the Disciples' Prayer, notice at verse 9 it says, Our Father. Verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. 
Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you notice something consistent there about the pronouns? They're all plural. Very interesting. And we can't miss this. Even in our private prayers, Jesus is reminding us that we are part of a body, that we are a community, that we are to be praying as a community, even in our closet, that we are to keep in mind and be mindful of that fact that we need to be in prayer for all of those in our body. Again, it is not me and God, it's we and God. We're reminded of that here. Don't ever see your walk with Jesus as an isolated, independent, disconnected, secluded, disengaged, detached. And corporate prayer is one of those ways visibly that, that really reminds us and encourages us as one body, to be one body. Now, some undervalue corporate prayer and they, they don't see the relevance or importance of it. There are those on the other end of the spectrum who overstate corporate prayer. They see corporate prayer as more effective than individual prayer. That corporate prayer, when people gather together, it's more powerful. God is more inclined to act. He's, he's more pressured to act even, I've heard some people describe it as. They often support this by what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 20, when he said, when two or three are gathered in my name, he said, there I, will also, I am there also in their midst. And they use that to say, see, when we're, we're gathered, Jesus is and praying, we're, we're, when we're praying together, that Jesus is with us in a special way. But again, Jesus is always with his people in a special way. We're his bride. We are his body. He is the head. He's always intimately connected with us and we to him. And we have to also remember that Matthew 18, the context there is, is speaking of what? Is it speaking of prayer? No, right? Speaking of when we come before brothers and sisters in the Lord and, and approach them regarding a, a, a sin that they are involved in and calling them to repentance, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is when you get to the point, if you've gone, they haven't listened to you, if, if you bring two or more brothers and sisters with you to talk to them, and Jesus is saying, if you do that, it is as if you are speaking on my behalf, and you are, because I want them to repent and be restored to me. So he's elevating the level of importance in us needing to go to one another, if there's any sin involved in our lives and going to them and gracefully and graciously speaking to them about that. And Jesus said, I am there with you in that. That is something I want to do. And in a sense, then we are speaking for Christ. when We're calling one another to repentance. In corporate prayer, you see, isn't it's not about numbers, right? Jesus told his disciples, if you have the faith of a tiny mustard seed, right? Those guys are tiny. So if you have the faith of a tiny mustard seed, you can move mountains. And that's because the power is in the object of faith, right? It's not in the amount of faith that a person has who's praying, and it's not in the number of people who are praying. Our prayer in and of itself doesn't move the mountain. God does. Right? So our corporate prayer is really a, a unifying act. That, that brings us together as we express our needs, as we express the desires as one, as we express praise to God. And I think the beauty of corporate prayer is that as we do come together with one mind and as God answers, we and as a body respond by giving Him praise together. It's an incredibly unifying event in church life. And that brings us to a second aspect of corporate prayer we've looked at the prevalence of it i want to talk a moment about the particulars what should we pray when we are together as a body 
That may seem like an odd question. Well, what do you mean, what should we pray for corporately? Didn't Jesus lay it out in Matthew 6, how we should be praying? And certainly our prayers, whether public or private, must be consistent with, excuse me, with what our Lord instructed us in Matthew 6, that, that we should be praying for God's glory, right? Hallowed be your name. That we should be praying for his gospel to advance, your kingdom come. That we should be praying for his will to be obeyed. Thy will be done. That we should be confessing our sins. Forgive us our sins, he says, our debts. We should be praying for daily needs. Give us our daily bread. We should be praying for strength to pursue holiness. Deliver us from evil. Our Lord's instruction provides a foundation. It provides a framework for how we should pray, for what we should pray, again, both privately and publicly. But in regards to corporate prayer... Is there anything else in Scripture that, that, that gives instruction to that, that informs us of there's something specifically or as a priority that God wants us to pray when we do gather together? And I looked far and wide in the Scriptures. There wasn't a lot of explicit instruction in regards to that, in regards to prayer and public worship, Expect there was, except there was one text in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2. I want you to go there. It's the most direct prescriptive text on corporate prayer. In fact, maybe perhaps the only text that's, that's direct and explicit. First Timothy 2, Paul here, he discusses prayer. And, and we know that it is prayer in the midst of corporate worship within the body based on what Paul said in First Timothy three fourteen about the purpose for which he wrote this letter. He said there, 3.14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so this letter Paul had written to Timothy, in light of the fact he may not get there in, in time or as soon as he wanted to, so he wrote this letter so that Timothy would know, so that we would know how to conduct ourselves within the church, within the household of God. When we gather together, how is it that we are to be? With one another, what is it that God wants us to consider as a church? So, look at First Timothy two one. That's the context in which he gives this instruction here. He says in chapter two verse one: First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so we see here in, in Paul's first instruction in church life, and chapter one he had personal instruction for Timothy, warning him about false teachers and what to do about that. In chapter two he transitions to church life, and the very first thing that he approaches, that he addresses, is prayer. Prayer together. What should we be praying for? And it's not prayer in general that's Paul speaking of here, right? He's not just saying, I want you to pray when you gather together. He actually has a specific group to be prayed for in mind and a specific request in regards to that group. Did you catch which group he's talking about? He said, pray for, for whom? For, 
10 verse 1. You're with me, right? Pray for all men, right? Then in verse 2, he says even more specifically, for those who are in authority, he says to be praying for them. And so what is it that he calls them to be praying for? Pray for all men, particularly those in authority, that what? What's the overall context of this paragraph? Notice verse 4. Paul mentions that God desires that all men be saved, right? In verses 5 and 6, Paul talks about the fact there's one mediator, Christ Jesus, and that it is only through him that one can be saved. And then in verse 7, Paul describes his mission to bring the message of that one mediator to the lost. So what's the context of this paragraph? Paragraph that he brings up prayer, but prayer in regards to salvation, right? In regards to salvation. That's what is driving Paul's heart here. And he said in verse 2, pray specifically for those in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. And I think sometimes that statement's a little misunderstood. Or I think some feel that, well, Paul said, pray for those who are in leadership, they would get saved so that life would not be difficult, so that things would be good, so that we could have the good life. But again, remember the context. Why is it that Paul would want leaders to be saved? So that there would be peace in the culture, right? To what end? What would that peace bring about? What would it allow to take place without being hindered? Spread of the gospel, right? That the the opportunity and the openness to proclaim Jesus and to proclaim his message that any who would come to him in faith alone, as John talked about earlier, and turn from their sins, place their trust in Jesus Christ, That that message could be openly spoken of and and go forth unhindered. And so Paul prays, pray for the leaders that they would come to know the Lord Jesus. So that at the end of the day, the gospel could spread forth even more rapidly and openly. And so here, because God desires the salvation of all, because there is only one mediator, one who can save and bring about that salvation, because that is the mission of the church, As seen in Paul's example, Paul then issues a command in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. Again, remember 1 Timothy 3.15, that this instruction is given in the context of corporate worship. It's also seen in that phrase, every place, which I think likely refers to where and when the saints are gathered. And so Paul's giving this instruction here. When we gather, we are to pray. And we are to pray specifically for the salvation of the lost. Notice here in verse 8 that Paul specifically indicates that men are to pray. Now he's not saying women are not to pray or that they are excluded from prayer in corporate settings. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, Paul indicates there that, that women were involved in participating in prayer when the saints gathered. Here the issue is that women are not to to lead the congregation in that. And we see that from the next several verses that Paul talks about in chapter 2 after speaking in verse 8. And he goes on to clarify women that were not to be in positions of authority in the church or have leadership over men. And so here in regards to prayer though, women indeed can and should and must be in prayer in corporate settings. We saw the example of the women and of Mary, Jesus' mother, in Acts, right? Also, too, Paul is saying here that men are simply to lead that time in prayer. And we have here in 1 Timothy 2 the most direct instruction that I see in public worship for prayer. And that instruction, again, is that we pray for salvation of men and women. And this makes sense, right? I mean, we should expect that to be the, 
the first thing that, that Paul addresses in regards to, to corporate prayer. Should we not? For isn't this our main priority? Isn't the spread of the gospel the primary purpose for which Christ has for his church? What did he say again? Make disciples, right? First, by bringing them to knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to faith in him. He said they're baptizing. And so to do that, we need to be praying. We need to pray for those who don't know him to believe in the gospel. We need to be praying that they would hear the gospel. We need to be praying that the gospel will go forth unhindered and that we will pray for one another to be bold in bringing that message, right? Right? (laughs) Isn't that the call here? That's what Paul, it's on his heart. That's what he's expressing. I think about Acts 4 again. We, we read that a little bit earlier. Peter and John came back. They said, hey, guys, we had a little trouble today. We got pulled in by the, the head honchos here in Jerusalem, and they told us to quit telling people about Jesus. And then, remember, again, remember, immediately they went to the Lord. They lifted their voices in one accord and prayed. And the punchline, the focus of that prayer was God's sovereign hand. And so they asked God, I'm going to read it again. Lord, take note of their threats and grant your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They had begged God for boldness to continue preaching, to continue proclaiming the Savior, even in the midst of the persecution that was coming. It was the same burden that that Paul had asked prayer for. It was on his heart that the gospel would spread, that, that he'd be bold to preach it. He said in Ephesians 6, 19, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Pray for me that I would not fear speaking up. But you need to pray for boldness for me. Second Thessalonians 3, 1, he said, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And again, in Colossians 4, 3, he says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. I think sometimes we we tend to think, you know, God's all powerful. He's in control. He's he can do whatever he wants. And so, you know, this, you know, his message of truth, his salvation is just going to go forth no matter what I do. And Paul here earnestly (laughs) says, pray for me that I'd be bold to speak it, that it would spread rapidly, that God would work, that there'd be doors open and that I would walk through them. But you have to pray. We have to pray. First Timothy two says, pray. Pray for the salvation of all. Because that is what matters to God. And so. We need to remember this. This is our mission as a church. This is our calling. It's to spread the gospel. To proclaim that message of truth, of salvation alone in Christ Jesus, and to live for Him. So saints, I would ask, are you praying consistently for the lost? Are you praying consistently for the lost? This hit me hard this week because I was thinking about, reflecting on what, what do I pray for? When I'm alone or when I'm with others. Is it, is it primarily for circumstances, for my situation, for my health? And, and again, those things are things that are okay to pray for. But I started thinking relative to how often, how much do I pray for those who don't know Christ in my family? Those that I know. That should be a priority in our prayer, especially when we're together. Are you praying for the gospel to advance in this community? in our state, in our nation? 
in our families, in our neighborhoods? Are you praying consistently for that? Are you praying for boldness to preach that message? Are you praying for God to send out workers? You remember what Jesus said? Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. Do we pray for that consistently? Not just once in a while. As we pray more fervently, more passionately, more consistently, more often together for God to do these things, for Him to work in the hearts of men and women, for Him to work in our own hearts, then God will move. You know, there are people outside these walls, perhaps some within, that will respond to the message of the gospel when they hear it. There are people there. Otherwise, we would be gone. We wouldn't be here. Jesus would take his church home with him. There will be people that will respond. I love what Paul said. I forget which city he was in. saying, we can't leave yet. There's more souls here. How did he know that? He just knew. When I, when I preach the gospel, some will respond. We need to remember that. Recognize that. Ask God to give us boldness to declare that message. Are you with me? Are you with me? Again, I'm speaking to myself too, beloved. I, you know, when I get beat up, you guys got to get beat up a little bit too. It's just not fair if that's not the case. But just realizing what is the burden of our hearts. And again, the first thing Paul says, Church, I want you to pray for those who don't know Christ. Be burdened for them. And be a part of answering that prayer by asking for boldness to go. And of course, this doesn't mean that we're restricted from praying for other things as we gather together in public worship. But it just does show, I think, the priority. First Timothy 2 is, again, probably the only direct instruction regarding prayer in public worship. But I think we can also glean some implied instruction from the prayers that are uh, requested by Paul and by the writer of Hebrews. There are several of them where Paul makes requests. We've already seen a few of them a, a moment ago. And so I, I looked at all the passages where Paul in particular, asks for prayer. And you could summarize them in three categories. The first is that he asked for prayer for the spread of the gospel and the boldness to preach it. And we've, we've seen those already. The second category that Paul requested prayer for was for deliverance from prison or persecution. In fact, he asked for prayer for that more than anything else. And I think we would understand that if we were suffering the way he suffered. Philippians 1.19, he says he looks forward to being delivered from his imprisonment in Rome through their prayers. Or in Philemon verse 22, he says, I hope through your prayers to be given to you. The author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13.3, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Beloved, in these requests, we're reminded of, I think, a much neglected need in our body, which is to pray faithfully and intercede for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering because they love the same Savior we do. And I thought about this. You know, I thought if somebody came into my home and grabbed my kids and took them somewhere and were torturing them, would I be praying for them fervently? You bet you. We have brothers and sisters that are suffering in prison, that are going through horrible... We've seen... It's more prevalent, I think, in the news than, than I can remember in a long time. 
fellow believers suffering, being persecuted. And we are reminded here we need to be praying for them. Pray for our family. There's a third category that Paul requests prayer for, and it was his own sanctification. First Thessalonians 5.25 indicates that. Uh, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13.18, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So there was a, a burden, a desire for the church to be praying for their own sanctification. And, and I see in these three areas implied what we need to be praying for as well as a body together. Because these prayers were written, they were given in the context of a letter written to the body of Christ. And so I think we need to take them as the body of Christ and praying for them together as well as privately. So this prayer, this desire for salvation of the lost, for boldness to proclaim the gospel to the lost, and for maturing in Christ, these are all things that when we gather together, should be a priority in our prayers for one another and for others. Spurgeon once said, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Does our prayer life as a church show us that we believe that? Spurgeon went on to say, The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer, me- so is the prayer meeting a graceometer. From it, we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Beloved, let that not be us. Especially when we gather together in corporate worship. That we be committed, desire to pray together. And that's why this morning we've looked at this. We've looked at the prevalence of corporate prayer and also its particulars. I want to spend a moment now to consider its practice. And we're not going to just talk about how to practice it. We're not going to just talk about that we should practice it. We're actually going to do it. For it would be pretty lame for us to have a, a message dedicated to the topic of corporate prayer and not pray together, right? And so I want to do this this morning and move you a little bit out of your comfort zone. Uh-oh, I heard some uh-ohs out there. Why don't you move a little bit out of your comfort zone by praying with uh, one or two people around you. So uh, if you would just break into groups of two or three or four, someone sitting next to you or in front or behind you. I'm going to lead our time. I'll begin our time in prayer. And then we'll, we'll cover the various aspects of the topics of prayer as we go through. I'll lead you in that um, as well. The praying for the salvation of the lost and the advancing of the gospel. Praying for the persecuted church. And then also for our own sanctification. So... Before we start, I'll give you a moment to form your groups and then I'll begin our time going before the Lord together, okay? Father, we, we come before you as a body, Lord, again, thanking you for the privilege, the awesome privilege that you have given us to be able to come before you. We, we thank you that we can, by the blood of your Son, only because we've been forgiven, only because by repentance and faith we have been made righteous by Christ, nothing in ourselves. And that because of Him, You welcome us and desire to hear from us. Thank You, Jesus, for interceding on our behalf. Thank You, Spirit, for 
bringing understanding, making our prayers correct. Lord, we confess as a body, Lord, I confess myself, uh, my sin. Lord, all of us have sinned. Perhaps some of us in, in serious ways this week. Lord, we confess that. We confess we are not where we need to be. We, we confess that we are a people who, Lord, lack diligence in pursuing being like Christ. Lord, even in our lack of fervent and consistent prayer, Lord, forgive us for that. Move in us to desire what you desire and to treat as important what matters most to you. And Lord, we would ask first, just as we've been instructed, to pray for the salvation of, of the lost. And I think, Lord, of first in here in this room, Father, that there may be some that do not have a genuine relationship with you. I pray that you would open their eyes to understand that message of truth. Christ has come to save, to save us from judgment and hell, to save us from our sin, to bring us into fellowship with Him if we would but confess our sin and put our trust in Him. And I pray, God, that You would work that message into the hearts of those who do not yet believe it. Lord, I pray for those in our families, our children, Lord, our other family members who do not know You, or parents, or siblings, cousins, Aunts, uncles, Lord, that, God, you would move in us to be bold to proclaim your message of the gospel and that you would move in their hearts to understand and accept and believe. Lord, forgive us for not being as bold as we need to be. Lord, move in us. Help us in this. God, we do not want to be ashamed of the wonderful message of truth, have a relationship with Jesus. Lord, I pray for those in our community. Lord, for those in Burbank and Glendale and North Hollywood, and Los Angeles, and Silmar, and La Crescenta, Tahunga, or Northridge, the Valley, so many around us, Lord, millions of people who are lost. God, move in us. Bring believers in their lives. Bring us in their lives. Share the message of truth. We pray for those in our governments, Lord. I pray for Capital Ministries and reaching out to those in the Senate and in the House and Bible studies and spreading the message of truth. God, I pray you would bring more to that ministry. I pray for our leaders, our president, our vice president, God, that they would trust in you. For Mayor Garcetti and for our Mayor Gordon here in Burbank, Lord, that they would come to know, love, trust, and follow the Lord Jesus so that the gospel could advance. Now if you would spend a few moments praying together for these things, salvation of the lost, a boldness to proclaim. Lord, again, I would just ask, please, that you would burden us to share the gospel. I pray, Lord, for our evangelism team that going out every Saturday night, that Lord, thank you for their faithfulness and consistency. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to embolden them to proclaim your truth. Lord, I know that they have many who heckle them and persecute them. And Lord, give them a hard time. And Lord, I know how, how many they have been able to talk to who are listening. 
pray, God, that you would continue to strengthen and encourage them and give them wisdom. And, Lord, that you would gather more to go with them. And, Lord, for uh, all of us, that uh, we would, can be burdened to proclaim your message within our homes and in our families and our jobs, neighborhoods. Pray now particularly for our brothers and sisters uh, suffering in Iraq and Syria and Iran and Saudi Arabia, throughout the Middle East, Lord, that many of them are, Lord, to have the threats of their own lives being taken frequently. God, may you strengthen church there and give them courage, protect them, bring salvation to those who are persecuting. Lord, we pray for the underground church in China. Pray for our brothers and sisters in Vietnam and Cambodia and Thailand, Singapore. Lord, in that whole region, I know many of them are are suffering persecution as well. We pray for those in Nigeria, God, who are being told to recant their trust in Christ or to die. Lord, strengthen them. Use them in mighty ways to lift up our Lord Jesus. Pray for those in Kenya and North Africa and Sudan and so many, God, so many of our dear brothers in Christ and our dear sisters. Lord, strengthen them, gird them up. Now, if you would pray together for for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Oh, Lord, we thank you for, again, the testimony of our Brothers and sisters, their example to us, their commitment, dedication to you, example of your grace, Lord, gives us hope in the midst of situations where we may, Lord, be attacked for our faith. Thank you for their example and thank you for ministries like Voice of the Martyrs that, Lord, help us to know what is happening regarding fellow believers around this world. Again, Father, move in us to be faithful, to, to pray for them, to send them notes of encouragement, to lift them up before you. And we pray too, Lord, for ourselves and our own walks with you, that, Lord, you would move in each of us to be holy, that you would empower us to be like Jesus, to follow his example. Lord, that by your Spirit, you would... Give us understanding of your word and give us the ability to live it out. Lord, pray for our own unity. Pray that, Lord, you would give us a passion to live for you. To live to exalt our Savior. To be passionate for him and his work in our lives. Lord, we recognize we we need you always. Lord, remind us of that so that we would be ever before you in prayer when we're alone when we're together that as Paul said that we would be praying without ceasing we pray these names in the name of our Savior